Well, good morning. If you would, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. We're going to look this morning at verses 13 through 18. This week, uh, we read uh, some portions in Acts, also some from 1 Corinthians. I also read all the book of 1 Thessalonians, but I thought this morning uh, what we would do, uh, although we would look at a few other parts in 1 Thessalonians, I thought what we would do is just really concentrate on these six verses in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, as we think about a coming king and his confident church. A coming king and his confident church. Let's pray together. Father, we are so, so grateful for your word. And at the same time, we are so dependent upon your spirit to help us as we preach and as we hear your word. And so we pray in dependence upon your spirit and ask that all across this room that you would drive out distraction and that you would drive out misunderstanding and that you would fill our hearts by your spirit with a love for and a longing for Christ who is our Savior, who has come and who is coming again. We pray that you would do that this morning for your glory and for the good of your people all across this room, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I studied this passage this week, and with all of its uh, emphasis upon resurrection and the coming of Christ, my mind returned again and again to the story of John Patton. Many of you have heard it before. Uh, Probably more than anybody else, John Piper has made his story kind of famous in our own day, Uh, but it so well captures really the heart of this text and really the driving impulse, uh, certainly behind his life and behind Christians throughout the centuries. John Patton was a missionary to the South Pacific Islands uh, known as the New Hebrides. He was there from 1858 until 1905, almost 50 years in the South Pacific set of islands known as the New Hebrides. During his time there, despite all kinds of opposition, despite the fact that there was virtually no Christian witness whatsoever when he arrived upon the island. By the time he left, virtually the entire island upon which he lived had come to Christ. But for those that are familiar with the story of John Patton, we know that getting there was not easy. Nineteen years before Patton set sail to the New Hebrides, in 1839. The first Christian missionaries, John and James Harris, landed in the New Hebrides. And within minutes of going ashore, they were killed by the natives there, and they were cannibalized. And so when Patton, who was a successful minister in his own time, when 19 years later, he proposed to a group of ministers gathered in a particular meeting, when he proposed going back to the New Hebrides as a missionary, it was met with stiff resistance and stiff opposition. There was a particular man that, Mr. that, that, that John Patton recalls in his autobiography, a man by the name of Mr. Dixon. He was an elder among the group, and he kind of spoke what everybody else was thinking as Patton kind of laid out his plan for going to, 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 as a missionary to the New Hebrides 
Mr. Dixon responded, said, the cannibals. You will be eaten by the cannibals. Pretty reasonable response, don't you think? But this is what Patton said. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a knockdown kind of quote. Patton said this. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. And there, to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Just as an aside, can you imagine how that Mr. Dixon felt at that moment? And there really was nowhere to hide. I mean, what, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, when you put it that way, I mean, this is kind of theological checkmate. I mean, there's really nowhere else to go after you say that. My resurrection body will rise as fair as yours. And I want you to, I want you to, to hear that. And then I, want, then I want to put beside that three quotes that I that I found this week as I was looking at an online forum, it's open to anyone, an online forum on death. Listen, hear what Patton has said, and then I want you to hear what people in our day say about death. Listen to what one girl has said. She said, I'm only 22. I'm only 22, but I have an extreme fear of dying. It's not that I'm worried about, worried how I will die. It's more like I cannot imagine ever waking up. I know that that life is based on being born and dying. But it's a scary thought for me. I've already set aside plans to be buried above ground in an above ground structure called a mausoleum. It's kind of like a little house. I may only be 22, she says. But anyone could die at any time, in any way. I'm scared of dying young. And I'm scared of dying old. Another woman said, one of my main worries is of a loved one dying. It's actually made me reconsider how many children I want to have, which is disappointing. Just knowing that there is nothing you can do about it, that death is completely out of control, she says. And perhaps the most revealing, this time from an atheist. He said, I have no religion or belief in the afterlife. Because of this, this is interesting, because of this, my fear of death and the unknown has been increased since my decision to become an atheist. Though I was not brought up with religious parents as a child, I was told about heaven and whatnot. But now I know that there is nothing beyond the grave. And the sheer thought of this, he says, keeps me up at night. He said, I'm not entirely sure what help I want or what help I need. I really just wish there was something that could comfort me about death. Brothers and sisters, what the world is longing for, what the world desperately needs to hear, and what the world is totally missing apart from Christ, we have in the gospel. We have in the gospel the promise of another life. In this world, we have 
we have the promise that, that when we look around and we see pain and we see distress and we see difficulty and we see disease and we see death even, we have the assurance to know that these things are not ultimate. What is ultimate is what, it la- is what lasts, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and His coming kingdom. That lasts forever and ever. We have a good gospel. We have good news that is good for our souls and is good for the entire world. And it's that gospel that I want, that gospel and the promise of His coming that I want to embed in my own heart this Christmas season. That I want to embed in all of our hearts this morning. I want us to, to be so to be so Christ-centered, to be so gospel-centered in this season that there is an obvious difference, as you see in those quotes, there is an obvious difference in our hope and the hope of the world. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through where, where I think that we see that so, so evident and so clear in Paul's writings here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, a coming king and his confident church. And what I want you to do, you kind of see it there sort of in your notes. First, I want to talk about really the, the distinction that we see between believers, how, how our hope is different from the hope of the world. And really those middle two bullets there to, to speak to really the basis for hope. What, 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 what do we base our, what, how, what do we found our hope upon that there is to be a real distinction between the way that the world responds to death and the way that we respond to death? And then I want, as we close, to just think just in a couple of ways. How, how does this text right here of the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus, how does that impact our lives even this morning. And so first, I want you to look, if you, if you would, with me, our, where we see that our response to death, first, is distinct from the despair of the world. That our response to death is distinct from the despair of the world. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances. We don't know exactly what, what was going on. We don't, understand it. we don't know exactly or precisely why there was confusion on their part about the second coming of Christ. They knew that it was coming. But at some point, they, they had some misunderstanding about the inclusion of those that had passed away. Paul had come. He had preached the gospel to them. He had told them of the second coming. He had gone away for a season. He writes back to them, or he gets word from them. There is confusion. There is there's disagreement. There's misunderstanding. What about those that have died before Christ comes? We don't know exactly how that happens, if it's false teachers or if it just Paul didn't explain everything the first time. But what we do know is that Paul is both comforting them with the teaching here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he is, I think, challenging them, as we'll see in just a few moments. And really that fits everything that we know. That Paul is challenging them to be distinct from the world. And it fits what we know of the Thessalonian church. And what I want you to do, I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn back with me to Acts chapter 17, where we see over and over in Acts, where we read first of Paul's interaction with the Thessalonian church, and then even in the letter itself, where we see over and over this distinction, this idea of a difference between the world and the church. Look at Acts 17, if you would. And we read there Luke's account of Paul and Silas going in at first to 
the city of Thessalonica. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, speaking about Paul and Silas, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on the Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So Paul does what he regularly does. He goes into the synagogue, place where he hasn't been before in that particular city. He reasons from the Scriptures. He explains them. He explains Christ to them as the Messiah. Some people believed. Some Jews, some Greeks, few of the leading women. And so he says in verse 5, But... The Jews were jealous. Not everyone believed. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, I love this line, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Speaking about Paul, in verse 7, And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. And I want you to notice this last line. Saying that there is another king, Jesus. Don't we want that to be said of us? That... That we're the world, when the world says that money is king and power is king and sex is king and influence is king and success is king and fame is king, those people over there at Brook Hills, they don't say those things are king. They say that Jesus is king. They have another king whose name is Jesus Christ. There is to be then a distinction, Paul says. It's evident from the very founding of the church, and then it's evident also in the letter. I want you to notice the same idea, this distinction between the world and the church. Look, if you would, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we see in verses 7 through 10. Look at what Paul says. Really, let's just pick up, look, just pick up in, verse, in verse 8. For not only, chapter 1, verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth in Macedonia and in Achaia, but, the word, but, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. You see, the people of God, over and over, from the very founding, the very first chapter, even into chapter 4, Paul is indicating there is to be a distinction between the world and the church. And two of the places that we see that, you see there in your notes, where the, where the people of God should be different, is that we should be different, first of all, in our behavior, and second, we should be different in our beliefs. That the people of God should be different, distinct, noticeably distinct 
from the people of the world in both behavior and in belief. And I take those two de- together for a reason. If you would, look at, verse, look at chapter 4 again, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. I want you to see, as we look at verse 13, I want you to see how what we believe affects what we do. Notice, it is not that we, we have certain beliefs over here and we have certain behaviors over here. It is that what we believe, what we cherish, what, what our affections reside upon, those things, what we believe, our doctrines affect what we do. And we see it there in verse 13. But we do not want you to be, he says, uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Apparently there was, there was again, some kind of misunderstanding, something that they didn't get. And so Paul is trying to fill in the blanks here. He's trying to, to make sure that he's trying to dispel their ignorance. Why? Not so that they can so that they can score well on some theology quiz. It's not so that they can have all the right answers, but because what we believe affects what we do. And that's exactly what we see in the rest of the verse. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are slain. In other words, those who have gone on, those who have died in Christ. Why? That you may not grieve as others do who have no In other words, our belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, our conviction that that is true, ought to affect everything that we do, and it especially ought to affect the way that we think about and the way that we approach and the way that we deal with grief. Now, I want to be really clear and I want to be really careful. And I don't, want, I, don't, I don't want to be mistaken in any way. I'm not saying that, that we should not grieve, period. Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say that when we lose a father or we lose a mother or we lose a friend or we lose a child, Paul is not saying that we should not grieve. We will grieve and we should grieve. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. I'm not saying that, that we should not hate death and we should not war against death in all, in all of its facets. We should. We should despise death as something that is alien to the intended order that God has made. But it does mean, as you see there in notes, it does mean that we do not grieve as those without hope. It does mean that there is a fundamentally different way that we think about, that we approach, that we deal with grief. And I want that to be the case in my own heart, in my family, and I want that to be the case in your heart, in your family, in this church. I want us to have such a rock-solid confidence in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, a, such a rock-solid confidence in the hope of His return that people on the outside would look at us before, in the middle, and after our grief, and they would say there is something different about those people. There is something that is distinct. There is, some, there is some hope that is not just the figment of their imagination. There is some hope that is not something that they are just doing on their own. There is some hope that resides in their heart that then changes the way, that molds the way, that shapes the way that they deal with 
with the greatest problem that any of us can face, and that is death. We are to be distinct in our response to death. Why? Notice number two. Because our response is rooted in the story of the gospel. Why is it? How is it that, that we are to respond differently to death? How is it that we do not respond with the despair of the world? Simply it's because our response to death is rooted in the story of the gospel. Everything that is said, both in this sermon and certainly in this text, flows from verse 14. Notice, if you would, in verse 14, that one word. You might want to circle it, where he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, verse 13, about those who are asleep. You may not grieve as others who have no hope. And then verse 14, what is the first word? He says, for. It's the word that really controls. Why, why is it that we want you to be, what, what is the basis of the difference that, we, that you see? It is everything that we see in verse 14. For since we believe that, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is what makes us different and nothing else. It is solely in what Jesus has done that, that creates, that, that accounts for the distinction between what we see in the world and what we see in the church. And what we see in this verse, as you see there in your notes, Paul is telling us that Jesus' resurrection is two things. One, it is proof that God can raise the dead. Paul is telling us there, Jesus died and rose again, that these are historical facts, these are things that, that we can count on, that these are things that really happened, the tense of the verb they use. But not only, is it, not only is it proof that God can raise the dead, the point that tr- Paul is really trying to make is not only is it proof that God can raise the dead, but rather it is a promise. It is also a promise that he will raise the dead. It is not just proof that God can raise the dead. But it is God's promise to us that he will raise the dead. You think about that. How, many, how do we know? How do you know? How do you know that, that you're going to rise from the dead? I mean, shouldn't we just be honest and say, you know what? That's a really strange thing to believe. I mean, you think about how many people do you know that have died and rose again and will never die again? How many people do you know? I mean, you think about when's the last time that we introduce someone and say, you know, this is, this is John from accounting. I work with him. And we're good friends. We went to college together. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. He, he was dead, but now he's alive, and he's never going to die again. How about that? I mean, how many people? We don't know anybody. I mean, the, the list is extremely short of people who have died, rose again, and will never die again. But that, brothers and sisters, is the power and the beauty of the gospel, that there is such an intimate connection between what Christ, who Christ is and his followers, that there is such an intimate union between the Lord Jesus Christ and his followers, that what the, te- what the New Testament teaches is that everything that Christ is, we benefit from. That everything that Christ does, it is accredited to us as having been done on our behalf. That everything that happens to Christ will happen to us as well. That's why you see over and over again in Christ, in Christ, everything that, everything that Jesus has, we have as well. It's kind of like, like a marriage. You think about maybe a young college man that gets married and before getting married he racks up all kinds of debt credit card after credit card after credit card 
And by the grace of God, he meets a wife who has lots of money. And she agrees to marry him. And they come together. And suddenly what we see in that marriage, barring a prenuptial agreement, what we see in that marriage is that everything, everything that was his, the debt, becomes hers. And everything that was hers, the riches, become his. And that's exactly what Paul is teaching us here in this verse. Notice what he says. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Well, notice that phrase right after that. Even so. Circle it. That's the point that Paul is driving at. Yes, we believe in the historical death and resurrection. But the, the reason Paul is marshalling that at this point is to point out that even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, which means this. What Paul is saying is simply this. That when Christ walked, that when Christ walked out of that garden tomb almost 2,000 years ago, it was not just a vindication of who he was and what he had done, although it was all of that. It was also God's irrevocable promise to every single believer in Christ that we too will be bur- we will we too will die we too will be buried and praise God we too will rise from the dead God has promised by virtue of his by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, that we will rise with him. Socrates said this about death. He said, oh, oh, that there was some divine word upon which we could more securely and less perilously sail. Brothers and sisters, we have more than a divine word. We have the divine word himself who has come and died and rose again, and we will follow in his train. Our response is distinct from the despair of the world. Why? Because it's rooted in the story of the gospel. And number three, it is strengthened by the certain return of the Lord. Strengthened by the certain return of the Lord. Look, if you would, at verse 15. This is really kind of the heart of the passage, I think. Verses 15 through 17, where Paul says, For this we declare. And verse 15 is really, you can kind of, if you want to kind of put this in your notes, it's kind of the, the, the summary, really, of what he's about to say in verses 16 and 17. So 15 is kind of the summary statement. 16 and 17, he kind of unpacks that. Verse 6, 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. We don't know what Paul means exactly in that. Don't mean if it, we don't know if it was some kind of supernatural revelation at this point, or if this is something that he had heard from the teachings of Jesus, something that had been passed down. But he has it on the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. He says, we declare this, that we who are alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with heaven, from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. When I was about 18 or 19 years old, I was, I was introduced to 
some books on prophecy. And I, I can remember the binding on them. I still have some of them in my office. And, and I mean, I devoured those books. I mean, I read everything that I could possibly get my hands on regarding prophecy. I knew, I knew every beast in Daniel. I knew every vision of Ezekiel. I knew every scroll, trumpet, and bowl in Revelation. I even taught, I remember, I even taught a, a youth Bible study on prophecy. That's exactly what they needed at that time in their life. Crucial period. They needed charts. That's what they really, they really needed. I was that prophecy guy. And I, I shudder to think of some of the things that I taught. Uh, yeah, uh, it, was, it was not good. Um, and I wish I could tell you this morning, well, I got it all figured out now. It's all good. No more mystery. I can tell you X, Y, every single thing. I can tell you how it's all going to go down. The truth is, there's still a lot of mystery. There are still a lot of things that, that I don't understand. And I suspect the same is true for you. There are probably things that you've read in Daniel and Ezekiel and minor prophets, and there are things that you have read in Matthew and Revelation that you just don't quite understand. But here's the deal. God isn't calling us, I believe. God isn't calling us to concentrate on the things that we do not know. Rather, God is calling us to concentrate on the things that we do know. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, he said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. In other words, God has made some things abundantly clear in His Word. And He has made them not to fill up our heads with certain ideas. Rather, he has, he has given them to us to strengthen us in our faith, to encourage us in Christ, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so my prayer this morning, as we look at these verses and we see the things that are clearly revealed, I pray that all across this room, as we think about and we contemplate the glorious return of Christ, that our affections would be rising all across this room as we think about it, and we, we long for the coming of Christ as Paul describes it here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. I want you to just notice just a couple of things that we know for sure. There are all kinds of things that we don't know, but these things we do know from his word. First, we know that his return will be personal. His return will be personal. Look, if you would, at verse 16. Look at what Paul says. He says, the Lord himself will descend. Grammatically, he could, have just, he could have left one word out in the original language. He could have just said, the Lord will descend. But it's, it's clear that Paul is intending to, to convey to us that it is the Lord himself who will return. He is not sending an ambassador. He is not sending an angel. He's not sending a representative. It is the Lord himself who will come for his people. And that's good news. And don't you want to see Jesus? Don't we long to see his face? This is, what, this is what William Guthrie, one Scottish pastor, said. He said, less than Christ would not satisfy, but more than Christ could not be desired. Less than Christ 
could not satisfy, but more than Christ, he says, could not be desired. Everything that we need, everything that we desire, everything that our perfectly redeemed souls could ever want, we will find in Christ, and he will be visibly and personally present before us. We know that his return will be personal, and we know that it will be public. We know that it will be public. He says, verse 16, that he will descend from heaven. Paul says, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Some have, some have seen in these verses some kind of secret taking away of the church, sort of a, a quiet removal of the church. I don't, I don't think that's what the text indicates. In fact, I think the one thing that the text does indicate is this is going to be a noisy event. This is going to be a loud, loud appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says there, he said he will descend from heaven with a cry of command. I love the imagery that Paul is using. That word, that, that phrase, cry of command. It's also used in a number of other writings in the, outside the New Testament. It's used, it's used of a warrior or a king. You get this. It's used of a a warrior or a king who is about to go out to battle, who is about to go out to war, and before he leaves, as the people are assembled, he issues a cry of command, a shout of victory. And what Paul is saying is that when Jesus comes back, he will not come back to fit in with the rest of us. He will not come in a secret man. He will not come, in fact, in the same way that he came the first time, as a babe in a straw. He will come, rather, with the shout, the cry of command. He will come as a warrior king, and he will come to his throne. And he will be accompanied, Paul says, with, you see it there in the text, he will be accompanied with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. We oftentimes think of, uh, of musical instruments, musical accompaniment, the trumpet of God, but in the very same way that we see that, that cry of command, it fits in exactly that same idea that when they were about to go out to battle, they would issue the trumpet of God, the trumpet of the people, and it will be a sound of battle, a cry of command, voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God signaling that this will be a public, and as we see in the next part, it will be a powerful return. And not only will it be personal and public, but it also will be powerful. I want you to notice, I want you to notice three things we see really in the end of verse 16. All the way into verse 17. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Three things. One, Paul says that the dead will come from their tombs. The dead will come from their tombs. Millions upon millions of believers all through the ages will come from their graves. It's a little scary, but it's a good thought, though, isn't it? All of these tombs opening up as the dead in Christ rise. And I love, I love the idea when he speaks about the dead in Christ will rise. There will be a resurrection of the dead. You think about, think about Ezekiel chapter 37. Write it out maybe even outside this. Ezekiel chapter 37. David preached on it several months back. 
You remember in Ezekiel 37, you remember the vision that Ezekiel is given? He's, they're in exile, and, and the word of the Lord comes to him, and he's taken out to see a valley of dry bones. It's representative of the people of God, that they are destroyed, that they are decimated, that death has overtaken them. And Ezekiel is told by the Spirit of God to prophesy to the bones. And as he does in Ezekiel 37, the the bones begin to rattle together. And they begin to come and they begin to form into a human body. And flesh is laid on them. And they stand on their feet. And the breath of life is blown into that body. And Ezekiel says in verse 10, he said, I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise, is the final fulfillment in Christ of Ezekiel's vision as the people of God down through the ages scattered in their bones are resurrected and are given unto Christ. A great and exceeding army. And Paul says they will have pride of place. They will lead the procession. The dead in Christ will rise. Paul also says that the living will come to their king. The dead will come from their tombs and the living will come to their kings. Paul says that they are caught up to meet Christ. That we will be caught up to meet Christ in the clouds, in the air. I love the fact that in the rest of the New Testament, this idea, circle that word, maybe note in your, in your notes, the word air. Paul says that we will meet him in the air. Throughout the New Testament, this, this idea of the air, it refers to the realm of Satan, the, the place of the kingdom of Satan. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul speaks about unbelievers following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, what Paul is saying is, The reason that we will meet him, perhaps, in the air is because that is understood throughout the New Testament as the domain of Satan, and we will go there and meet the Lord. In other words, the Lord will invade the territory. He will invade the realm. He will overturn and overthrow the kingdom of Satan once and for all. The dead will come from their tombs. The living will come to their king and last the Lord will come to his throne. The Lord will come to his throne. Paul says, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul says that we shall meet the Lord. The, the word meet there is really a technical term throughout the New Testament. It's used in Matthew chapter 25 when we're talking about the the bridegroom, excuse me, the, the, the bridesmaids that go out to meet the bridegroom. It's also used in Acts chapter 28 as Paul. Think about this reference. Paul in Acts chapter 28 is coming into Rome. It's the end of Acts, and so Paul is making his way to Rome. And he says there, Luke says there in Acts chapter 28, verse 15 and 16, when Paul was still outside the city gates, notice this, when Paul is still outside the city gates and he's making his way into Rome, it says, on seeing them, It says the brothers were there, and when they heard about us coming, they came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself. In other words, they did not wait 
They did not wait for Paul to get into the city and say, hey, Paul, how you doing? Rather, they went out to meet Paul outside the gates and then returned with him. It's the same idea throughout all, all kinds of Greek literature and even in the New Testament, we see that this word to meet is a technical term for going out to meet a dignitary, to going out to meet a prince, going out to meet a king. If Caesar is coming to your town, you do not wait in the gates for him to come to you. You go out to him. And then you come in triumphal procession with him. And it is the same image that Paul is conveying about the return of Christ. Yes, the dead in Christ will come from their tombs. The living will go, be caught up to meet him in the air. And as we do, we will not, we will not go up to meet him to go somewhere else, but rather the idea is that we will go and we will meet him. Why? Because the king is coming and we as his subjects, as his followers, as his worshipers, give him the honor and the glory and the and the privilege due his name, and we go out to meet him, to return with him. And Paul says, in that way, we will always be with the Lord. That his return, as it is personal, public, and powerful, coming and reigning upon the earth, that we that that rain will not be a day, it will not be a season days, rather it will be forever. Look at what he says at the end of the verse. He says, and so we shall always be with the Lord. His return is a permanent return. His return is a permanent return. Literally, it is in this way. It's not just the conclusion to what Paul is saying. So, we, in other words, it's not a conclusion of so. Rather, it is in this way we will always be with the Lord. I don't know. I don't know when this is going to happen. And anybody that tells you that they do does not. We don't know when this is coming. Jesus himself said that the Son of Man doesn't know the hour or the day. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. Could be. Don't know if it's going to be next week. Possible. I don't know if it's going to be 10,000 years from now. I just know that it will be. That it is even now, marked on the calendar of heaven, that there is coming a day, as Paul speaks about here, there is coming a day when, when the Lord himself will arise from his throne. And with a cry of command, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, he will assemble the dead from their tombs, a great and exceeding army. The, those that are living, that are left, will be caught up together, transformed, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed, caught up together to be with those who have gone on before us. And then we will return upon the earth and he will establish his kingdom. It is what, what John speaks about in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. He said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our, our, our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign 
forever and ever. And so Paul says in this way, in this eternal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we shall always be with the Lord. Glory unto God and glory unto Christ who is to come. And what Paul says in verse 18 really is, I think it's just the natural outflow of what we see. That our response to death is distinct from the despair of the world. It's rooted in the story of the gospel, strengthened by the certain return of the Lord. And last, it is, it is confessed for the sake of one another. In other words, we don't just let this sit there. This is not something that we come here on this morning of November 28th and we just hear and say, you know what, that's good and, and i got to go get something for lunch. This is to be transformed. This is something that, that is to transform the way that we live even now. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything that's come, circle that word, therefore, in light of everything that has been said, in light of his death and resurrection, in light of his certain coming, the resurrection of the dead, the, 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 the raising of, or the, the gathering together of those that are with the Lord, the coming of Christ to the earth, in light of all of those things, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. I want you to be encouraged this morning. There are some of you that no doubt are struggling. There are some of you that are facing all manner of opposition. There are some of you that are indeed dealing even now with death or the prospect of death among those that you love. And that's, that's a particularly acute and difficult thing to deal with as we come into, into the Christmas season. And so I want to encourage you. I want to encourage our entire congregation in, in all of our spirits that, that there is coming a day, as John speaks about in Revelation 21, when there shall be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. I want to encourage you this morning to know that whatever is raging in your life, whatever chaos there is in your life, to hear the truth of Paul's words that, yes, Jesus is coming, he will reign, but that is grounded in the fact that he reigns even now. That the presidents and governors do not reign, that circumstances do not reign, that Satan does not reign. Jesus reigns. And so would we, would we encourage one another with that truth this morning? How can we not to know as the, as, as the rest of the world struggles day by day, not knowing what is coming, not knowing what is ultimately true, not knowing about ultimate reality, when we know that there is a king who is named Jesus and he reigns even now, how can we not encourage one another with that truth? Be encouraged in your spirit and to be encouraged in your obedience. If it's so. You remember, remember what Patton said? I don't care about the cannibals. I'm going. Why? Because there's coming a day when God will raise my body from the dead one way or the other. There are, there are too many of us that buy what the world is selling 
and have allowed all the pursuits of the world and all the things of the world and all the ideas of the world to infiltrate our minds and to capture our affections so that the truths of the gospel and the promise of his coming are crowded out to the periphery. And so what we pursue is not the things that are out there. We pursue the things that are on our heart. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, you know the Lord Jesus, if that is you, I would encourage you with everything in me to be renewed this morning in the gospel. I'm not here to beat you up, not here to tear you down, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying, why don't you spend some time this morning confessing to God that all, all, all manner of things have crowded out your affection for Christ in your heart. And why don't you... Why don't you meditate on this passage? Let this be central. Let the gospel, this Christmas, let the gospel and the hope of his return, the fact that he will, he has and he will indeed save his people from their sins. Let that be front and center. To be encouraged in your spirit, encouraged in our obedience. And I would hope that every single one of us, wherever we are at, if we know Christ, that we would be encouraged in our worship. How can we not? How, how can we read a passage like this? Triumphant, conquering, victorious, overcoming. How can we read of that kind of Savior and just be indifferent to it all? I would hope that this morning has stirred your affections for Christ has stirred your affections for His gospel so that, so that we worship Him in spirit and truth this morning, all week, all Christmas season, and are determined to speak of that gospel, that, that it would be the overflow of everything that we do in these coming weeks, that, that Christ's gospel and the hope of His return would be on our lips. And if you're here this morning, and you've never trusted Christ. And all of that just, it just doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't quite add up. You really, you resonate more with the doubts and more with the, more with the struggles. If you've never trusted in Christ, I would urge you with everything in me this morning to repent of your sins and to place all of your hope and all of your faith and all of your eternity in Jesus Christ, in His death and His resurrection and nothing whatsoever in addition to it. And if you do, then you, along with brothers and sisters across this room, have the hope, united in the confession, Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and coming.